The Aboriginal peoples of the Kulin Nations are the traditional custodians of the lands now named City of Greater Dandenong. We acknowledge, recognise and respect Elders past, present and emerging and their continuing connections to climate, culture and country. Welcome to the Open Book Podcast, books, events and conversations with the team at Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm Lee, and in this episode, we're lucky to have winner of the 2020 Prime Minister's Literacy Award, Omar Sekar, reading two incredible poems for us. Robin and Rwandi discuss the magnetic novel Leave the World Behind by Rahman Alam. In the theme of White Ribbon Day, I interview Lisa Burke from Ways Dandidong about The Orange Door, the project she manages to support people going through family violence, and Mina provides a bookmatch recommendation of materials she's put together on the theme. And lastly, we have two title reviews from library staff members Don and April. Hope you enjoy! Assalamu alaikum. My name is Omar Seika. I'm the author of two poetry collections, These Wild Houses and, most recently, The Lost Arabs, which won the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. I'm going to read two poems for you. And the first is called How to Sleep. My cousin the farmer is laden with death. He tells me, Each morning he checks the chickens while I sleep. The weaklings need killing, so he walks among them, dawns spectre, and takes their lives. It has to be done, he tells me. While I sleep, the long sheds, hot as summer's guts, are home to lone acts of kindness. Among ten thousand fluffed bodies, his eyes hawk upon the others, the strange winged, hobbling, he tells me. I get a little rope, noose it round their necks and hang them from the ceiling. He laughs at my belief. I'm kidding. I just snap their necks like this. His huge hands twist the air so sharp I'm surprised it doesn't crack. Ravens haunt the nearby treetops, and foxes stalk the feathered earth. Outside the sheds the survivors yet live, for now. My cousin tells me Cain and Abel were the first to farm, to keep and raise animals as sacrifice. A lamb for God, a brother for the devil, who taught a man how a stone could crack a skull, but not why. When the devil brought news of her son's downfall, Eve said, Woe to you, what is murder? He eats not, he drinks not, he moves not, said he in reply. Many days I have lain as if felled by a fallen angel, unable to move. I tell my cousin, maybe I lose half my days in penance, maybe I die a little every night. 
for this, the absence of a brother. He walks away from belief. He will sleep tonight in the hot house, lying in the reek of their living. He will be covered in a cloak of wings, hear the song of too many hearts, and his hands will be stoneless still, all of them waiting for the crack of dawn. This poem is called Citizen Of. One desultory howl is what I imagine singing out the throat of the grey wolf separated from his mate by a wall neither had dreamed of. There are so few of them left, it falls to me to dream of a muzzle unbothered by country, summoning the music of the lost. Wolves understand territory, borders of lifted leg, but not of stone. Maybe the Americans will walk along the dirt and drench the invisible. Nobody consulted the wolf, spotted owl, jaguar, thick-billed parrot, barred tiger salamander, Mount Graham red squirrel, ocelot or armadillo, as to which passport they would deign to keep. Of course they are citizens of everywhere, at least in part. Some species must move to live, and that means they must also have enemies. An angry landlord, a jilted lover, a neighbor who couldn't bear to be outshone or outhowled. So maybe Arizona's no good anymore, or Mexico is the go. For some, love is a destination to be winged toward or from. It's never where you originate. Others just want to eat or stretch warmth out another season. Scientists haven't measured or mapped the devastation a wall would trap in place, but the lights at night would lure millions of monarch butterflies to flutter topaz gold no more and fall to drape the earth like autumn leaves. Bilingual beauties, I don't need to imagine their house. Everyone will hear it echoing in time. Listen, it is tickling your ear even now. And now, Robin and Rwandi book chat, the novel Leave the World Behind by Rahman Alam. I'm here with Rwandi for our book chat this month. Hi, Rwandi. Hello. We're discussing Leave the World Behind by American author Ruman Alam, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2020. And this is the third novel by Ruman, and it was a finalist for the American National Book Awards in 2020. It's a thriller that has been called a disaster novel without the disaster, but we'll talk a bit more about that later. Um, here's an overview. The book is set over a period of about three days, I think. Clay and Amanda and their teenage children, Rose and Archie, go to an Airbnb on vacation. The house is modern and luxurious with a pool and a spa, and it's in a remote part of Long Island, New York. On their first night there, they get a knock on the door late at night. It's an older African-American couple called G.H. and Ruth, who say they are the owners of the property. 
They say that something has happened in the city causing a widespread blackout. They were at a concert and didn't want to go back to their 14th floor apartment. So they thought it would be safer to come out to the house instead. So this sets up an awkward situation amongst the adults in particular of suspicion and resentment and then fear and anxiety. Firstly, who are these people? Are they really the owners? Clay and Amanda are annoyed at having their holiday crashed by the older couple. But as time goes on, they realise that something really serious has happened out there. They have no TV, no internet, no phone. So how do they really know what's going on? They just have a few push alerts showing up on their phone about a blackout on the East Coast and a possible hurricane. So the authors created this thriller-like atmosphere as the adults decide what they will do. Do they stay in the relative safety of the house or go out and try and find out what's happening? I found this book really intriguing and unsettling. Rwandi, what did you think about the book? Um, this was my first read of uh, Roman Alarm. Something different to what I normally read. I agree, Robin. Uh, it was very unsettling. It is fascinating that the author has woven this story around an ordinary middle-class family uh, with two teenage children and their vacation and turned it into a roller coaster ride in the verge of a disaster. Um, and if you can read past the first chapter, the book creates an overwhelming sense of dread and tension. Mm. Did you find it hard to get into at the start? Yes. Um, for me, uh, it was um, not my normal uh, style of reading. And I thought it was um, the way it was written for me. Uh, it was difficult to grasp uh, the uh, the contents, as in where it's going. First chapter was, I think, it's more of uh, the author was setting the scene for uh, their vacation, but I found it uh, it was really hard to uh, read. As you mentioned before, Robin, uh, it is a disaster novel, um, and it takes the reader to a dark abyss. I could not help but think, what if? What if we actually lose power and all communications, unable to figure out what to do or what what's happening in the world? It is a scary feeling. I was really scared and tense, <laughs> yeah. you know. And the novel also touches the day-to-day -day struggles of human lives. Um, I thought it was fascinating, you know, being a working parent, sick kids, strangers, and simply put, just being human. Mm. You know, yeah, so. he does um, manage to touch on a lot of uh, different topics. And mm. I think their sort of their basic humanity is stretched by this situation, the, as particularly the four adults and um, especially Amanda, the character of Amanda, I think. Mm. I was interested in, in what happens when Clay and Amanda um, first meet GH and Ruth when they turn up at their house. Aside from them being strangers, Amanda and Clay are thinking, they don't look like people who would own this kind of house. And they think that perhaps they're the cleaners or that they're there to, um, you know, rob the place. So there's lots of prejudices that come up. Um, I don't know how you found that, that section, but I was kind of amazed at their reaction. Um, yeah, I understand that uh, they were uh, disturbed and taken by surprise. Uh, but the automa um, automatic nature of their thoughts shocked me a bit. This older couple are obviously well off, 
uh, more so than Claire and Amanda. It's hard for them to accept that an older African-American couple could be wealthier and more upper class than they are. They are in a dilemma about whether to let the older couple stay at their house. In the end, they felt it was important not to do the moral moral thing necessarily. Yeah, they sort of kind of um, put up appearances in the end. It wasn't really how they felt, but um, mm-hmm. it's felt how it was like how they should react kind of thing. Mm, yes. So, yeah, that bit was very mm. interesting. Yes, and um, I think the author actually uh, uh, put out the our inner dialogue. So it was interesting, I thought. Sometimes, mm. uh, you know, the, the characters uh, uh, talked about how they uh, felt as well. You know, it was written there in such a way. And, you know, sometimes if we l- let loose what we actually think uh, in situations, um, I think people would be great trouble so I thought Mm. that was fascinating as well yeah yeah he's kind of um voicing maybe what people think but don't say yes at times yeah which is very interesting there's another aspect uh, to this story so the author uh, sorry the author touched about um, how dependent are we on the technology the tv our mobile phones and how we take things for granted like electricity as it is there Mm. Um, it is. Uh, it fascinated me when the author described the day has changed, uh, but no one noticed it. It got me thinking: Aren't we the same most of the time? I th- thinking of myself, <laughs> you know. Mm. Sometimes, you know, you just travel, but then you forget to look around. So we don't ha- do not have time to stop and smell the roses uh, and look at the sky or the beauty around us. Mm. Yeah, and I think sometimes we're aware of things happening in the world, but it doesn't necessarily change our lives or Mm -hmm. our behaviour. And um, if we can remove ourselves from it, then we do. We become sort of more insular and we just stay in our own uh, little world. Um, But it it was interesting how the book highlighted our reliance on technology. And if we don't have it, we're quite lost. Um, There's a part in the book where Clay goes out to try and find the local store and get some information and he gets hopelessly lost because he doesn't have the GPS and he just goes around and around in circles. And I've read a quote um, from uh, the author, Ruman, who was talking about us as humans, how we've um, already been rewired by technology, even though technology is a relatively new thing. Um, it's really changed the way that we think and the way we operate, which is very interesting. There was this one fr- uh, phrase really struck me. At one point, uh, when Claire and Amanda were worried about their kids in the verge of, verge of this unknown disaster, the author, po- author poses a question. Um, Though the parents may ask themselves uh, whether we are ready to have kids or whether we are financially stable, etc., Uh, Most of them may not uh, forget to ask what type of a world that we leave behind for our children. Mm -hmm. So I really cannot shake off this eerie feeling I felt thinking about it. Uh, So, But on the flip side, uh, it made me want to contribute in um, even in a very small way to make the world a better place for our future generations. I think it's uh, it's something positive or not really dark, you know, something like uh, the light at the end of the tunnel sort of a situation. Mm, mm. 
Yeah, and where um when I was thinking about it, I thought it's it's another way to interpret the title as well. Um, leave the world yes. behind, I guess, because mm -hmm. um, I think of that as a phrase referring to you know particularly in this context um, to get away from everyday life and have a holiday. But it yeah. could also refer to what kind of world are we leaving behind for the future? Yes, yeah, it's really something to think about. Um, and at one stage in the story, there's a huge noise and the adults can't describe it. They've never heard anything like it. And they speculate and think it might be a bomb or a missile in the distance. And while this is going on, their reaction is to sort of retreat into domestic things. Like I think one of the characters bakes a cake, one does some laundry. It, it seems strange in the face of a possible crisis like this that people resort to very doing very mundane things. But I think the author's sort of alluding to the fact that the middle classes especially do choose to ignore what's going on in the world a lot of the time, the sort of pending crises and just sort of bury their heads in the sand. Um, and there was a quote that I saw in a New Yorker article about this book saying, no matter how bleak the situation, these people cling to normalcy. And normalcy for any upper middle class American entails consumption, comfort and domestic equilibrium. So it's just trying to keep things, you know, trying to keep a lid on it as normal as possible and really sort of um, not think about what's happening and, and kind of hope that it goes away. Yeah, I agree, uh, Robin. So I think for me, I realised I like to live my life as normal as possible. Mm. You know, so we have uh, things to worry about anyway every day. Um, so we all do, I think. In the process, uh, I may have stopped thinking of what's happening in the world at large. But now, after reading the book, I cannot stop wondering about all the wars, climate change, sicknesses, and people suffering, the pandemics, pandemic we live in um, at the moment, and everything else. So I can't say I really like it, thinking about <laughs> all that, uh, but it, it's sort of a constant nudge, I feel. Um, so leave the world behind uh, helps me to more uh, be more aware of the reality, to be honest. So though I don't really like it, I think that we all, it's something that we all need to uh, see or remind that we actually live in a reality that we can't, you know, sometimes it will catch us uh, up to you one day. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah, it certainly makes you think. And I think it's encouraging us to be more connected, you know, more connected to our communities, to the world around us and, and to the natural world. And it's been really interesting, I think, to read this book in these current times of the pandemic. And when I first read it, we'd recently had the earthquake in Melbourne as well. Mm -hmm. So in the book, there's, there's mentions about climate change, about rising water temperatures, disappearing species. Um, and some of the characters notice changes in the animal populations. You know, there's a scene where um, uh, Rose sees great migrations of, of deer happening. And then there's another bit where all these flamingos suddenly appear in their swimming pool. Um, but, you know, it's sort of, as the author's saying, but the world went on. Um, this, this wasn't an entirely natural event that was happening, we think, in this story. It was something more man-made, like a, a war or an attack, you know, some missiles or something. But as the author says, the business of being alive and trying to stay 
alive just went on. And I thought this passage from the book was really telling. I think it was Clay that was reflecting on this. You told yourself you'd be attuned to the Holocaust unfolding a world away, but you weren't. It was immaterial thanks to distance. People weren't that connected to one another. Terrible things happened constantly and never prevented you from going out for ice cream or celebrating birthdays, going to the movies or paying your taxes. So, yeah, I think he's trying to say not, not only do we go on with our lives, but it doesn't really wake us up. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't shake us up and necessarily make us want to um, live differently and, and do things differently. So I, I think that's what he's trying to, to get us to think about in this book. If we talk about the ending of the book, Robin, yeah. um, so what do you think about the end? Um, yeah, um, well, the ending was a bit abrupt um, and I guess um, a bit of a spoiler alert here. We never find out exactly what is happening. Like this is the um, disaster without the disaster kind of bit. Um but the narrator does give us some glimpses of the future that the characters are not aware of. Like, um, we'll say things like they don't see people suffocating in the underground or babies perishing in the neonatal unit. Um, this person doesn't know that she'll never do this thing again. So there's a, there's a sense of foreboding, which is somehow scarier, I think, than finding out all of the details. You know, if the narrative sort of went into all the action of what was actually happening out there, um, this kind of um, spectre of the unknown that he's created is is even more tense and even scarier in a way. Um, yeah, what did you think of the ending? Um, I, to be honest, I think I expected a different ending. <laughs> so, mm. yes, as in like just a proper ending as in to... I, think as a reader I love to um, uh, know what sort of a disaster or what happened to them mm. but um, at the same time I like the fact that um, author uh, has taken the youngest member Rosie to end the story to mm. create the ending around her and it's not that dark uh, given the fact the book is about a disaster and um, there's the glimpse of hope to the future that uh, that they would re be they would be reunited though the disaster hasn't passed um, and as well that no real uh, uh, disaster as in nobody got killed or anything as such um, but I think um, on the flip side the author has uh, given uh, the reader the opportunity for imagination we can mm. end the story the way we want so it it's uh, you know it has given sort of a very uh, yeah you can actually imagine uh, and end it the way you want sort of I think mm. but, yeah um, yeah yeah I think so I think um, I don't mind endings that are sort of a bit open to interpretation mm -hmm. and I think one of the phrases maybe it was right at the end sort of said you know like any day you didn't know what would happen the next day. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so you make your own choice. Um, yes. And like you, I, I liked that the fact that Rose was involved in the end and it sort of made me, yeah, it made me feel like the author was saying there's hope for the future with the, with the younger generation. Yes. Yeah, so I enjoyed that. 
Um, the, the book's been quite divisive. When I was having a look online at the reviews, um, some have given it five stars and some people have given it one star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'd be interested to know what you think. Uh, I think I'd give it um, four stars because of the impact that it had on me and the author's ability to create such tension and, and make me think. Um, what, what would you rate it? I would rate, uh, I would give four stars as well for the same reason. So it was, I was really shocked, you know, sort of tensed after reading the book mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the reality. Most of the time we try to ignore and be normal, you know, so. Yeah. 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 It really shook me up as well. I was yeah. thinking about it for days afterwards and um yes. Yeah, I didn't know whether it was because of reading it in this time, but it mm-hmm. um, it really did make an impact on me. And also, I read it quite quickly as well because I was finding it quite absorbing. You know, I sort of wanted to keep reading and, and yes. find out um, what was going on. Yeah. And interestingly, um, it's already been optioned for a Netflix movie uh, starring Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington. Uh, I'm not sure when that's coming out, but that'll be interesting to see how they put it on screen. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Yeah. I think uh, it's a good book. You know, it's a different uh, read, but it's, uh, I think it's a timely read, you know, so everyone Mm. needs to, I think it's a, it gives us the um, understanding or, you know, depth of what we are dealing in day-to-day life and in the world at large. So, yeah, it's interesting to see what uh, Netflix will come up with, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we'll watch see. the movie, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll definitely watch it, yeah, to, yeah. See, um, to see what they do with it. Um, but in the meantime, thanks for the chat today, Rwandi. It's been really great to talk to you about the book and I guess people Same. can read it themselves and make up their own mind. Thank you, Robin. It was nice talking to you and um, yeah, reading the book, you know, and have this uh, having this discussion with you as well. I really enjoyed it. Leave the World Behind is available to download as an ebook from the library or to borrow as a hard copy. Details are in the show notes. Hey, everyone. Please note that the next two segments discuss themes around family violence, domestic violence, and emotional abuse. If this is something that may be too heavy for you or that you would like to pass on, then skip forward around 24 minutes. And now, an interview with Lisa Burke from Waze. Hi everyone, I'm very lucky to be joined today by Lisa Burke from Waze, an organisation that supports people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness and people who have experienced family violence to access safe, secure and affordable housing. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. Can you introduce yourself and your role at Waze? Sure, hi Lee. Well, thank you for asking me along today. It's a real privilege to be able to talk about something I'm really passionate about. Um, so I'm Lisa, so I'm manager for Family Violence, The Orange Door. Um, so I manage the team at Ways, um, who are family violence specialists who are going to be based at The Orange Door when it opens in early November uh, in Dandenong. Um, as a part of that team, I've got 44 staff 
Um, and uh, we'll be working alongside workers from Anglicare and Uniting, uh, VACA, Dedacle and Child Protection to provide wraparound service. Fantastic. Um, and are you able to tell us a little bit more about the Orange Door? Yeah, of course. Um, so the Orange Door is the result of um, a recommendation from the 2016 Family Violence Royal Commission. Um, and the commission was established <coughs> after the um, horrible murder of Luke Batty at the hands of his father. Um, so the Royal Commission found that um, services uh, who were supporting family violence victims and their children uh, weren't really communicating and weren't working collaboratively together to pass on information. So you'd have one agency doing one thing, police, for example, doing something else, but it was like the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Yeah. Um, so, um, so apart from police, it included child protection, family violence services, housing services, um, AOD, so alcohol or other drug services, mental health services, hospitals, um, men's services, family and children's services. So there's a lot of services that can be involved um, when uh, supporting people who are victim survivors and their children, but also supporting perpetrators. Um, so... By So the Royal Commission decided that um, all these services should come together in one place where we could share information, we can work collaboratively to support everyone involved in family violence. So at the Orange Door, you have um, the, the main agencies that are based there are Specialist Family Violence Services, which is WAYS, um, in our region, Anglicare, who are the men's services, we have Uniting, who are the children and family support services. We have VACA and Adakal, who are the Aboriginal services. We also have um, community child protection base there. So we'll all be working in um, integrated teams. So each team will be made up with a combination of people from the different agencies so that we're able to provide a more holistic approach. We're also hoping that rather than... Um, victim survivors having to deal with four or five different workers from four or five different agencies, they just have one person that they contact and all the information will be fed to that one person. Um, so it's kind of like a one-stop shop. Mm. Um, so at the the main hub, which is an orange door, is in Dandenong, but we also have two access points, um, one in Casey and one in Cardinia. So people from those areas don't have to travel all the way in if they want to do uh, anything face-to-face. -face. And it helps um, uh, each each of those access points to develop relationships with their communities as well. Mm. Um, so we're getting really close to the opening of the Orange Door. It's been a long time coming. We're looking at probably another four or five weeks before it opens. So... Um, we're all very excited. All the staff have been doing a lot of training, learning mm. about services and things like that, whilst we keep our service ticking over. Um, so Waze receives um, the reports, police reports, for example, um, for females, whether they're victim survivors or perpetrators. Um, and going into the orange door, that will still be our specialty, but we'll be working with other um, 
other uh, agencies for that collaborative holistic approach. The other thing the Orange Door provides that we'll be doing is having in-service. So what that means is um, uh, maternal child health nurses can be on site maybe once or twice a week. Um, we will have uh, In Touch, who are the multicultural family violence service. They'll be on site uh, a couple of times a week. Um, and I think Centrelink might be bringing, sending a social worker a couple of times mm. a week. So it's going to be um, the sort of place where if they, you know, we can't do everything, of course, but if we need to link somebody in with um, Centrelink rather than them having to necessarily, if they can't go to Centrelink or don't want to go to Centrelink, a couple of times a week we'll have someone at the Orange Door so they can just come into the Orange Door to access those services. Oh, that's so fantastic. And how exciting that it's um, mm. looking to be opening up soon. Oh, it is. Yeah, no, we're very excited and actually does have an orange door. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> True to its name. Yes, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask as well, the, the term gets used a lot, but um, are you able to explain just what, um, I suppose, your definition of family violence is? Sure. So family violence is basically when one person exerts control over another and prevents them from living life on their terms and the way they want to live life. Um, the definition of family violence has changed over the years. Initially, you know, a few years ago, uh, if you talked about family violence or domestic violence, um, it really just focused on physical abuse and assaults. But since then, um, it now includes, so the definition of family violence can include sexual assault, and that can even take place within a marriage um, or, or a relationship. Mm. Um, financial abuse, financial control, um, emotional abuse, um, isolating somebody, so isolating them from seeing friends or family. There's verbal abuse, um, and it's uh, controlling behaviours, uh, anything from controlling who they see, who they, what they eat, where they can go, when they can leave the house, mm. those sorts of things. Um, and a very big one, uh, which has been in the media recently quite a lot, is coercive control. And that's um, it's a very subtle, can be a very subtle version of control, may not even, it's almost creeps up on you. And a lot of that is around gaslighting. So um, I'm just thinking of a case where over the years a partner um, would question uh, his uh, the victim survivor's sanity, um, but he would actively do things that mm -hmm. would make her question her sanity. He would move her keys. He would... Um, uh, uh, another thing he did was after she'd done the shopping, he'd empty out all the milk containers and say there's no milk. And she'd say, no, no, I definitely bought the milk. Mm. Well, where is it? It's not here. So over time she became um, a, a shell basically, uh, and that's how he controlled her. He controlled all the finances. She barely left the house and she seriously, she actually came in through um, admitting herself into um, an emergency department because she seriously thought she was going mad. Mm. So it's those sorts of things as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, you kind of mentioned it before, but um, 
Are there any other services that the Orange Door provides that um, you wanted to list? Yeah, look, we're very inclusive. The Orange Door is very inclusive, so mm. anybody can um, come to the Orange Door. We get, we will be getting probably most of our referrals will come through police reports, mm. so they're called L17s, um, and they come through a portal. Uh, we also take referrals from other agencies, so we might get a referral from Child Protection or um, a men's behaviour change program, any mm. agency where they feel that there might be um, some concerns. Um, we get quite a few from um, the maternal health nurses who, you know, when they go out to visit new mums, one of their first questions is around, um, are they feeling safe? Mm. So we do get referrals from them. Um, so the other services we've got, the, the ones I've talked about are basically the services we've got there. What we do is um, once we've received referrals and whether that's a self-referral, someone walking in or ringing um, or referral from any other pathway, we do a risk assessment um, and a needs assessment. And we also do risk assessment. We don't just do risk assessments on mum, for example. Each child will get their own individual risk assessment. Mm. Um, once we've done that, it's um, passed through to another team who will then contact uh, the client and find out what their immediate needs are. Are they safe now? Do they need anything now? Do they need emergency accommodation? Do they need any support? We'll be able to provide uh, if someone's phone, for example, has been broken. Mm. Uh, in an incident, we'll be able to provide them with a new phone. Um, we will be able to provide them with um, uh, emergency accommodation, which unfortunately it's usually motels. Mm. Um, we can refer them to Safe Steps, which is the um, statewide emergency crisis accommodation um, service, um, and they can provide um, emergency accommodation in out of area, so not within um, southern Melbourne area. If they, if we, you know, if it's decided by everyone, including the victim survivor, they need to be out of area for safety. Um, so once we've done that and we've worked out safety needs and uh, any other needs they need, might have, we'll do safety planning with people. And then we discuss where they think, if they want further support, do they want further family violence case management support? Um, and we might do that because if they decide they want to move to another house, they need help doing that. Uh, we can do lock changes. We can set up security. We can do security audits. Um, so anything like that we'll do within the orange door once mm. they're referred. But if they want a referral, we'll, we'll refer them out either to Ways for Case Management um, or we might refer them to Uniting or Windermere for family counselling. Um, so it just depends what they want, but there's lots of referral pathways out. It could be in touch, could be Wellsprings um, mm. to have that specific multicultural lens on family violence um, casework. Uh, so yeah, there's lots of, and if they identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, we're able to refer them to Bacarol or Dadakal as mm. well. So there's lots of lots of um, places we can refer people to, um, and that's basically what the role of the orange do door is is mm. to be able to 
put, you know, help people in the immediate um, situation, but also offer referrals for longer term support. Um, and I think it's really important. You know, we're really lucky we've got so many services in, in our area that we can access. Um, um, and it's really important also for people to remember it, it's all very confidential. Mm. Um, and it's a very safe place for people to go um, if they want to. The actual building itself has a separate secure area where you need a pass to get in. So if someone's worried that they may have been followed or they're not feeling safe, we can put them in that area where yeah. they can meet a worker. That's really wonderful. Yeah. Um, I want to ask as well, do you need to be an Australian citizen or a permanent resident to access these services? No. No, not at all. We're not. We're not. Um, yeah. No. We'll. Anyone who needs help will support. Um, if someone is not a, an Australian citizen or a permanent resident, we can support them um, with referrals to other agencies for material aid support. Mm. Uh, Ways itself isn't a material aid agency long term. Uh, we can do emergency, but we can't. And crisis, but we can't do long term. Um, and supporting people. Um, with their visas in touch are a huge help. They've got a, um, a whole department, like they've got workers and that's what they do. They help people um, with their visas. Um, and uh, we can link them in with Centrelink if they've got no income to see if we can change their Centrelink status, that sort of thing. So we are able to support people do that. Wonderful. And lastly, I just wondered, do you have any advice for what to do if you if you suspect someone might be a victim of family violence? Mm -hmm. Like, how can someone approach that conversation? Yeah, that's really tricky. It mm. really depends on your relationship with that person. Um, uh, it's it can be a very touchy uh, mm. subject. Um, often, for victim survivors, there's that sense of shame and humiliation associated with being a victim of family violence. Um, and also culturally, depending on your culture, um, can make a huge impact as well. Mm. Um, and like I said, I think it depends on your relationship. I'd probably start with an inquiry about their general well-being, mm. perhaps, um, and you know so, um, how how are things going with you. You look a bit tired, um, or you feel look like you've been under a bit of pressure. Do you want to talk about it? that sort of thing um, and it's really important to be non-judgmental um, it's very important to listen I think listening is the most important thing um, if someone does start to disclose just let them talk um, and then just say can I is there something I can do to help yeah. and you know take it from there um, and a lot of it might be building trust as well yeah. Um, the last thing you want to do is have someone say, uh, if they're being pushed or someone saying, yeah, you know, he can't treat you like that, he's he's horrible, he's a bad man, he's a bad husband, you're going to push her probably further away because what you're doing is saying that you've made a bad choice mm. and no one wants to be told they've made a bad choice. Um, and it can take you know, 20, 30, 40 conversations maybe. Um, if you see someone who perhaps has got a physical injuries, a bruise, something like that, that looks a bit, uh, no, you didn't bump into a cupboard, 
mm. sort of bruise or something. Um, instead of going, how did you get that? It would be, I'd be saying something, wow, that looks really painful. Are you okay? Mm. Taking it from that perspective. So it's really been, it's that non-judgmental lens that, I'm not going to judge what's happened to you. I'm not going to make a judgment about you. I'm not going to make a judgment about your partner. Um, and often, you know, people, once they realise you're not doing that, they will open up more. And it's the same for workers. I know, um, for example, sometimes police, um, there an incidents report and police would like the, the victim to make, victim survivor to make a statement, but she's just not ready to do that. Mm. Um, and I've heard of, um, I know of one case in particular where the police made contact. They didn't push her or anything like that, but they said, oh, look, we'll just check in on you, you know. That's okay. You don't have to make a statement. You know, you know, we can wait till you're ready. They worked with that woman for 12 months, just making regular phone calls. How's it going? Do you need anything? Before she felt comfortable to be able to make a statement. So it can take a long time for someone to feel to take that, uh, feel comfortable taking that step. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, it's, and it, if they do um, disclose family violence, it's really important. Uh, what do you want? What do you want to do? Mm. How can, and, you know, do you need me to help? Can I help you with that? Um, but, uh, so, but the other thing is if, if um, people are really concerned about their safety or the children's safety and feel that something might happen soon, which could be quite bad, um, you know, it's certainly worth talking to them and saying, look, I'm really, really worried. Um, I'm going to go and talk to a specialist family violence agency. Um, we can call 1-800-RESPECT. Mm. Um, we can call Safe Steps. Um, or um, we can go to the police and I'll support you with that. Mm. If anyone witnesses family violence and whether that's hearing shouting and, and screaming from a neighbour or witnessing it on the street or anything like that, definitely call triple zero mm. straight away. Yeah. Mm. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Lisa, and thank you for all the work that you do and... Um, yeah, it's really amazing. And we're so excited to see the the Orange Door open up soon. Absolutely. I hope not to see anyone there. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, but it's all there. Um, uh, yeah, we're there. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Lou. And now, a book match recommendation around the theme of White Ribbon Day from Mina. Hi, my name's Mina, and I'm an information librarian at Greater Dandenong Libraries. In this segment, I will be highlighting a few things from a resource list of books, documentaries, and academic papers, as well as some podcasts and radio shows that we have put together that focus on gender inequality, family and intimate partner violence, and sexual violence. I'll highlight a few of the resources from the list now, and you can find the full list on the podcast webpage. Hersey, Survivors of Domestic Abuse Tell Their Own Stories. Edited by Jackie Clark and published in 2021 by Penguin. This is an anthology of stories of some of the women that Jackie has met through her charity, The Aunties, which operates out of New Zealand. 
The Aunties is a grassroots charity that helps women who have experienced domestic violence with material needs and emotional support. Importantly, the collected stories tell the lives and personal histories of these women in their own voices. The second title is The Mother Wound by Amani Haydar and was published in 2021 by Pan Macmillan. Amani Haydar is an activist, lawyer, writer and mother. Her book examines the insidious nature of family violence through the very personal prism of the murder of her mother in 2015 by her father. Amani examines why she didn't see her parents' relationship as abusive until after her mother's death. She talks about the reactions some of her extended family had to her mother's murder and their expectation that she would forgive her father. She talks about the erasure of her legitimate anger, her imperfect victimhood, and the intergenerational nature of her family's trauma. This book is about Amani's journey through the justice system, and as she said in an interview with the ABC, it is also about reclaiming her right to be angry, not to forgive, and to be empowered by that choice. The third title is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, published in 2020 by Alan and Unwin. This is Machado's memoir about an abusive same-sex relationship she was in. The writing style bends genres in similar ways to her acclaimed short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties. This book is also about the scarcity of stories of queer domestic violence. Machado was limited in her range of language to write about her experience as she hadn't read her experience. This required her to invent language and use form and style to find a way of speaking about violence within LGBTIQ relationships. The book has an experimental element but is very accessible, not to mention wildly engrossing. The next title is Brazen Hussies, a 2020 documentary by Catherine Dwyer. This film shows how women began organising around issues such as equal pay, reproductive rights, affordable childcare and the prevention of family violence and rape. As the story unfolds, these issues go from being dismissed as the outrageous demands of a few brazen hussies to becoming crucial elements on the platforms of Australia's major political parties. Featured activists include Merle Thornton, Margot Nash, Pat O'Shane, Barbara Creed and Kate Jennings. The second documentary I'm going to highlight is called Hitting Home, a critical look into the domestic abuse cycle. This two-part documentary is streaming on Canopy as well. It's by Sarah Ferguson, who is also an award-winning journalist with Four Corners and Foreign Correspondent. Sarah spent six months investigating on the front lines of the family violence crisis. She had unprecedented access to courts and safe rooms, domestic abuse programs in prison, forensic doctors and specialised police units. She even moves into a women's refuge in search of answers. In the film, she asks, how does domestic violence begin and how does it escalate from control to physical violence and even murder. And finally, I'll highlight an academic article that you have access to with your library card via the Informat database. Using Informat, you can search academic journals and articles on a huge range of subjects. The article I'm highlighting today is Ensuring Access to Justice for Women Experiencing Family Violence Beyond the Pandemic. There has been a lot of research on the impact COVID-19 and the subsequent lockdowns has had on people experiencing family violence in Victoria. In this article, Kate Fitzgibbon and Naomi Fitzner of the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre discuss access to justice and the relative merits of access to justice innovations such as remote modes of legal service delivery. There is such a range of voices and resources out there discussing the complexities around gender inequality and family violence. 
I hope something here or on the resource list on the episode webpage piques your interest. Thanks for listening and I can't wait to see you in the library again soon. Finally, we have two title reviews from library staff members Don and April. The Aboriginal peoples of the Kulin Nations are the traditional custodians of the lands now named City of Greater Danrong. With knowledge, recognise and respect elders past, present and emerging and a continuing connection to climate, culture and country. My name is Don and today I will be talking about the film In My Blood It Runs. It is available through the Greater Danong Library's online e-resources platform, Canopy. In My Blood It Runs is a documentary based in Alice Springs, which follows the powerful story of 10-year-old Duan and his family, as they struggle to balance his traditional tribe upbringing with a Western-style education. The film opened up my eyes to the racial difficulties and prejudice that Indigenous Australians suffer. Duan, who speaks three languages at home, is revered as a child healer, described by his great-grandmother as a young doctor, a gift given to him by his country and grandfather after he passed. At school, he is taught by white Australian teachers about the dream time, but failed to give the heritage the respect it deserves. Duan ends up failing most of his subjects and starts misbehaving. Duan is labelled as a failure if he doesn't fit into white Australia. In My Blood It Runs does not pretend there are easy answers, but it highlights the importance of language and culture. It also suggests that certain changes are required for the Australian education system. At the end of the film, Duan quotes, What I want is just a normal life, by being me, And what I mean by that is being an Aboriginal. Hi, my name is April and today I'll be reviewing the film Hunt for the Wilder People, written and directed by Taika Waititi. This film is a laugh-out-loud comedy which takes the viewers on a great adventure, exploring the themes of family, loss, survival, belonging and community. The film stars Julian Dennison as rebellious, witty Ricky, who has been moved from foster home to foster home and therefore has developed a tough exterior but is craving a place to call home. The other star of the film is Sam Neill as Hector Faulkner, Ricky's foster father, who struggles to bond with others but through the events of the film becomes a lovable hero. After a tragedy, Ricky runs away into the wilderness, resulting in Hector being forced to follow him. Following a series of unfortunate events, the two are thrown into an adventure as they try to escape the police, the locals and wild boars. Along the way, Ricky makes some new friends and Hector and Ricky bond becoming an unstoppable duo. The messages within the film are lovely and its subtle comedy is sure to please viewers. This film can be viewed on Canopy for free with a library membership. It is a great family movie, 
However, I would recommend it to children aged 12 plus due to some of the themes explored in frequent language and low violence scenes. I highly recommend this film to our patrons and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can check out the show notes for more information on all the items we mentioned in the podcast and you can place holds on them via the Libraries Victoria app or at our website greaterdandenong.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries. 